I'm not afraid to 
CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Ink Stud Show, the radio show where we talk about comics and sound a little spooky. Um, that was a couple of tracks by Nouvelle Vogue, um, starting with Dance With Myself, and then playing a little uh, Bella Lugosi's Dead. Maybe it's that old uh, kid that used to DJ in goth clubs and me that wanted to play that. <laughs> <laughs> we can all laugh. Um, today's special guest is uh, Canadian cartoonist David Collier. Um, we're doing this month-long special focus on Canadian cartoonists, and you really... Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, you know, because uh, I, I feel bad that you had to play a couple of tracks there, because, like, I was just out in the Madawaska River reading Geist magazine. Like, what could be more Canadian than that, I guess? I made this little kind of, like, raft of noodles and stuff, so I can, like, sit in the nice cold water, and uh, I had, like, this kind of car cup, you know, over the top, and I was drinking hot tea and, like, sitting in the water, and, uh, Geist is this magazine of Canadian ideas and culture, so there you go, it's from Vancouver, too. There would, it's, this will be a very Canadian show, then. Yeah. Uh, if, if you could only stay there and still do the show. Yeah, I know, I don't have a cordless phone, eh, but, uh, <laughs> I think cold water is, like, kind of like Canada's, like, uh, little powerhouse, you know, like, I think cold water is a source of energy, you know, like, you... You want that to, like, cool your nuclear reactor. And I use cold water a lot, just like when I'm reading. I'll just sit in a cold bath or something. And, and I don't know, like, it really uh, separates the wheat from the chaff, you know? Like, <laughs> like I don't like, want to, like, hang out in cold water, but I do. And it's like, okay, I only read things that are really good in cold water. So, like, you know, like, if you read, like, 1950s speed reading books, it's like you just got to, like, you just got to be brutal when you read and just take the important information, right? So, like, I've read, like, everything by T.C. Boyle in Cold Bath because his work really is good, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll read it, you know, but a lot of stuff I'll just, like, just skim through, you know. Do, do you read... I'm sitting in cold water. Do you read comics in cold water? No, comics are special, you know. And uh, I had this thing when I was in Saskatoon, I just, like, read, like, a little bit of a comic every day, like the way, like, a daily comic was... Uh, written like so i'd be reading like these old milton Caniff comics like one day at a time I had all these little post-it notes and stuff and all these books and all these i had like a three-foot stack high of comic of uh, like you know reprints of daily strips and i'd read them like at a certain time in the morning and i'd just like pretend i was reading like a newspaper from 1927 or 1947 <laughs> the good stuff you know that and i could really see like how brutal these cartoonists treated their audiences like some stuff like Ken F. It'd be just like brutal, the suspense, you know, like this woman with the water up to her neck and it's getting higher and higher and she's chained up in a basement and then you've got to wait till the next day to see what happens, you know? So, yeah, it's very interesting if you read comics. Like, uh, if you just set a special, you know, spot in your life for comics, for reading, it's, uh, yeah, I find that's the best. You know, I don't well, really see you know, him through comics like that. We out here on the West Coast are kind of soft because, you know, it doesn't get that cold here. Well, I don't know. It gets pretty cloudy a lot, though. Eh? Oh, yeah. Very, I don't know. You get that ocean thing. It's just kind of a... I thought, you know, when I moved from Saskatoon to Hamilton, I thought, oh, here I go. I'm going to be moving to, like, the Riviera. It's going to be great, <laughs> right? But this whole water thing, it really chills you. And uh, I spent a lot of time out in my kayak out there paddling around Hamilton Harbor. And uh, some days... I had one day, like, in April, like, I thought I was going to have a stroke. Like, everything was just, like, I could hardly see. I was so cold, you know. It was just the wind and the water. So, 
You know, the West Coast is, can be pretty tough, too. You, know? you get those storms off the Pacific, it's hard. Oh, nothing like you get over, over in Hamilton. Some of those November rains, though. Yeah, yeah, no, I like uh, Vancouver and a lot of a lot of interesting people I've known in my life. Uh, or from them. This guy, Al Medor, I don't know, he was from Vancouver, and me and him worked as messengers. And back, like, around 1983, we'd just, like, be tossing books at each other, like, we read them, you know, here's Saline, check this out, and here's something good, and just, like, throwing books at each other, and uh, in between, like, going out and picking up artwork, we worked for this place called Artistat. So Al moved from Vancouver to Toronto, and he's, we were both working at this kind of minimum wage job, but I learned so much about art and reproduction at this job and literature from Al that it was the best job, you know. So yeah. let's it was like in Toronto they had all these artists and art agencies around Young and St. Clair and our job before computers and scanners and stuff they had like photo uh, mechanical transfer cameras mm-hmm. and we'd pick up the artwork and we'd put them on the uh, guys who worked in the shop would put them on these big uh, uh, boards where they'd photograph them eh? and that's how they used to reproduce artwork I'd learn like Walking into these artist studios, like you know, what you know, how they draw for reproduction, it's very interesting job. Now, David, I'm wondering, um, just uh, because we're a comic show, I know the there's a lot of reproduction taken in comics. I'm just wondering what took you, what what brought you into comics? Because it seems like reading your work, you really live and breathe comics. Well, you know, but you know that can be kind of a drawback too, because I was so into comics as a, a young guy. Like I'd hang around Captain George's Memory Lane when I was even grade six, you know, because my parents moved downtown Toronto around the annex, and uh, these kind of real cool downtown kids made friends with me. Like their parents were like, you know, playing piano in the Friendly Giants, and they had parents who were like into like working for the CBC, they were like very uh, kind of cultured kids, right, and hip downtown kids, and they got me into hanging out Memory Lane, which was uh, one of the first comic book stores in the world, and and Captain George was publishing stuff before anybody else, really, like Captain George's was bang, and the wallpaper in the store was like old comic sections from 1917 or whatever, and like, all this amazing... This amazing world that this guy made, right? And, and I can remember, like, being, like, you know, a real young preteen going down to the Central Library and looking through the old newspapers and stuff. And, you know, I'd spend my summer vacations immersed in, like, old comics, seeing how far I could go back with bringing up Father and Popeye and stuff. But so I had, like, this, this uh, awe of the medium, but it wasn't until, like, this punk rocker, Brad X, uh, who'd just come over to Canada from England in the early 80s, you know, he's kind of kicked my ass to actually draw them, you know, because I was just kind of uh, maybe too scared to do it, you know. But mm-hmm. he was like, oh, man, come on, just let's stay up all night and make some tea and have smokes and draw comics all night, you know. And that's how we uh, started doing that, you know. So uh, I think uh, you can get too... Uh, I don't know, too studious or something, and and uh, it was this guy who kind of 
unfroze me from uh, being uh, just a scholar of comics to mm-hmm. actually drawing it, you know. And this was when you first um, got in touch with Robert Crumb, right? Yeah, because uh, me and him, we sent these comics to, like, that we did to like all the cartoonists we admired, like even the, maybe Bill Keen of Family Circus, everybody. <laughs> Crumb was the only guy who wrote back, you know? And he's like, you know, tighten up your inking and learn how to spell your words mostly right and I'll publish it in Weirdo. And it took me a long time to get into Weirdo, like it kept on trying and trying, and he'd write back and say, oh, I don't know, this is a little too obtuse. I debated with myself about publishing it, you know. Trying to make, you know, we got to make things entertaining, you know. And, uh, so that was a long time. It was a, a great education because Crum, uh, you know, passed on a lot of uh, knowledge, you know, in the process of trying to get me into the magazine. You know? um, Robin Bougie was telling me that you... He, when he was at your house in Saskatchewan, he'd show him, or you'd show him all these, like, I guess Crumb would photocopy a sketchbook for you and stuff. Was that really formative in your own yeah, training your art? Uh, it was like, got to keep it up like a discipline, he'd tell me, you know, and uh, do it every day and stuff. So, yeah, that was uh, that was a major deal, you know, and I still draw my sketchbook every day. Just drawing today, and it's great. You know, my kid was looking over my shoulder at it, and we were kind of laughing at what it was drawing. So it's a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, it's a good habit to have. You know. Now, when did you start wanting to like? When did you go in the direction of doing um, biographical comics, um, comics about other people? And was that something right from the beginning that was drawing yeah, you in? You know, I can remember one of the first strips I did was like. A visit to Canada's Wonderland, and how uh, uh, me and my girlfriend did all this ecstasy and went to Canada's Wonderland, and it was such fun. And I, I remember, like, going back. I, you know, once I started drawing the strip, I thought, oh, I've got to, like, do research more about, like, getting the backgrounds right. So I'd, like, I went to Canada's Wonderland in the winter and hopped the fence <laughs> and just got a look around and made some sketches and stuff. And, and that kind of got me into, like, you know, the research and the, being the kind of detective and tracking things down and getting everything right, you know. But uh, I did that strip about Grail and uh, a comic book about Grail. And, and, and the research, you know, you just get immersed in it, you know. just like, okay, i got to know what that guy who met Archie Blaney at the train station in 1911 looked like, you know, and I'd write to the National Archives and the National Library, and they'd send me books on loan, and it's like I had this, like, brick wall of books around my drawing board, you know, and just all these sources and stuff, and you just get immersed in it, you know, it's just, you get obsessed. Well, uh, I've never heard of a cartoonist before who risked their lives to get uh, a drawing of Grey Owl's cabin. Well, yeah, that was more like a personal kind of journey, though. It was like, you know, I'd, uh, I'd been doing these drawings for the Globe and Mail of places across Canada, and uh, it was really handy. Like, I'd drive to Seattle from Saskatoon. Like, I was being published by Fanographics at first, and, like, uh, one of the things I thought I should do was Grey Owl's cabin. I was in the winter, and... Uh, they told me at the park I couldn't do it. But, see, I was, like, 30 years old. I was about to turn 30. And I was, like, 
you know, what do I have to lose? You know, like, what have I done with my life? And, you know, I didn't have any family. And, you know, I was alone in Saskatoon. And you're trying to strive. You're trying to make a name for yourself. You're trying to, you know, see what you can do, right? And uh, I was just lucky. I had, like, warm weather for the first couple of days of that trip. And, you know, like, I had my art studio and everything on a toboggan. I was pulling behind me in cross-country skis Cause, to cause get you, up there because, like, there's no, to- no mobiles allowed in the park, you know, Prince Albert National Park in northern Saskatchewan or anything. And, and then the, wa- the weather turned really cold overnight, and just this big blizzard came howling down. And it was just, like, the luckiest thing in my life. I saw this distant light, and it was like, I didn't think anybody else was in the park, but Apparently in the national park in the winter, these trail crews go around and they chop wood and like clear brush and stuff for the summer visitors. And these guys were out there, like living out there, and and they were in the cabin. And uh, yeah, they saved my life. I think. Now, um, a lot of listeners uh, don't understand the extreme climate of the prairies. Maybe let people know how cold cold was. Oh, you just be like. You go out for a walk, and just to get your keys to open your door, to take off your gloves, it's just, your, your mittens, it's just brutal, you know, like the, I remember one month in Saskatoon, it never got above minus 30, and it'd just be like this ice fog and stuff, and it's just like, ah, oh, I just went to a place called Quinn the Eskimo when I first got to Saskatoon and bought all this army surplus parkas and mucklocks and those mittens that go all the way up to your elbows and stuff. And then, yeah, it'd be, like, so cold, and you'd see, like, some Native people just, like, in shirts and, like, T-shirts <laughs> and a ball cap. And, like, what the hell? Old Native people, like, I don't know. They could take it, right? And you'd think, like, yeah, Natives have lived out in Saskatoon, you know, over winters, like, for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. We're used to the more gentle uh, European climate. Yeah. I don't know. But uh, I guess Norwegians are pretty good at it, too, eh? Like, I'm really into uh, cross-country skiing, and I'm really into getting out, you know, every day. And in Saskatoon, I'd get out and ski around, and, and sometimes it'd be so cold that the snow would be like styrofoam. It wouldn't really glide and stuff, and it really sucked, but, you know, it's just you got to get out there, you know? Because I think there's kind of like different kind of ions when you go outside, like negative ions that are... You just improve your mind, and and uh, I'd have times in Saskatoon I'd be like depressed, and uh, oh, gotta go out, gotta go, and finally get out, and it's like, oh yeah, my problems are solved. Right? I think uh, the one things really chur- changed around the turn of the last century, like when people in cold climates started going out more. It used to be like you'd read like old Russian novels, and like the peasants would just like seal up their doors and they'd be like 12 to 1 room and just stay in all winter on some in some parts of northern russia they would actually sleep on their stoves oh yeah they would have these enormous stoves and they would sleep on them during the winter well i have country friends uh, and one of their daughters was sick and she was just they had no they have no heating all they have for heating is a stove this is in prince edward county in ontario and, like, their bathtub freezes and all their plumbing. Uh, but, yeah, the daughter was sick once, and she's living under the stove. Yeah. Still goes on. Like, you still meet people, like, in the valley. Right now I'm talking to you from the Ottawa Valley, kind of, and, like, there's people. Electricity came here 
maybe 20 years ago, but I, I know people, they don't even have electricity now, and, like, they're just fine, you know? There's old old people like, oh, I'm not going to pay $1,000 a hydro wants to run a line to my property, and so they don't have electricity, you know? It's, it's wild. This is kind of a crazy country. I <laughs> the, the, the pioneer frontier is still uh, being yeah, tamed. Yeah, it's still out there, yeah. You come out to the bush here, and it's... Uh, you really got to be resourceful. No, amazing. Um, one story reading through all your work that really stuck out to me was the one you did about your grandfather. Yeah, tell me. Uh, he was a big influence on me too. Eh? Mm-hmm. Like I found it really like really touching story. Like it just seemed like there's so much passion you put into really capturing who he was. Yeah, warts and all kind of way. Well, I guess he had a, a passion for uh, for his family you know and uh he wanted to get like his message out to me so badly right that uh you know even when he was 90 he's still writing these letters once a week you know i'm just reading roy mcgregor's book about his father eh? life in the bush and same kind of thing just a my grandfather was a guy who's entirely self-taught you know and he had to leave school when he was 14 and working Liverpool, kind of dock, kind of, his family were stevedores and all that, and, and, uh, yeah, he's just an amazing guy, you know, and, uh, now my dad's kind of comparing himself to him, and my dad's turning 70 soon, and, and as I compare myself to my dad, right, so, mm-hmm. so again, lessons from my father, yeah. Are you, you seeing the repetition of the generations? Yeah, yeah, and that's why it's uh, pretty amazing to have a kid, you know, because, uh, you know, I think uh, I wanted to put some family stuff in my own work because I just wanted to pass on that it's it's a pretty good thing to do, you know, like these timings that nature give you, uh, they don't, they're not kind of uh, flexible, like you really... When you get that window of opportunity to have a family, you got to go for it. And my wife and I had no idea, like, how the hell, you know, we were going to do it. Like, we moved from Saskatoon, and James was a little baby, and we lived right here where I'm speaking to you now in this, in this cabin that nobody had ever stayed in in the winter before. It was built by my wife's grandfather, who's a miner up at Cobalt, and... An old guy said, oh, you got this old Saskatchewan pickup truck. Well, you know, there's a mill over a mile away, and they got like a scrap pile, and you can heat your fireplace all winter and that. So we just lived on all these wood scraps. You know? So, yeah, you just got to go for it no matter, you know, no matter uh, how hopeless it seems, and it, and it usually works out, you know. So, uh, yeah, like my grandfather, when he was married, he, he didn't have enough money to buy, like, more than a bottle of beer to celebrate the wedding, right? And they were mm-hmm. like, how the hell are we going to do this, you know? Liverpool is like Calcutta, like it was, like, it's a really poor place back in the, the 20s, you know? But they did it somehow, yeah. He came to Canada when he was in his 50s, and people were laughing at him on the ship, right? Because, like, he used to work on these ships going in between Liverpool and Canada and New York City, and uh, 
So you knew a lot of the guys on the ships, and you're like, you can't get a job in Canada, you're too old. We ended up working at the Royal, uh, the Windsor Hospital, Windsor, Ontario, the Grace Hospital, until he was in his 70s, right? And made a better life for my father, you know, and my father went on to uh, be very successful in his business, which was a kind of market research firm, and he started uh, working for this little restaurant in the early 80s, and my sister and I were kind of worried about him. You know, he had this little basement business, and it's just this shoestring operation, but this little firm that he helped, you know, he... They say that he was more responsible than anybody else for like getting this this company into into the success that they later enjoyed, right? Mm-hmm. So like this whole Tim Hortons thing is a lot lot to do with my father, you know? and, and so it's just really interesting, like how uh, the whole family thing. My father with Tim Hortons just wanted to do something that his family would feel comfortable in, like his like his dad and. And uh, his sister, just a really basic Liverpool working class people, and he wanted Tim Hortons to be like something like he'd feel comfortable with, you know. And so it's just interesting, you know, the, like the passion, the family, it's like something that you can bring into your working life. Really adds to the Canadian identity because you don't get much more Canadian than Tim Hortons. Yeah, yeah. My dad really worked hard in that. Like it, sometimes I'd just see him and he'd be like, hardly be able to speak, you know, he's just like, talking to me, like sitting on the couch, like asking what the hell you're doing with your life. Or he'd be like uh, in the air like every week, like traveling to Edmonton, Vancouver, St. John's, all these towns just talking to people and asking what they want in Tim Hortons, right? And like I don't know if, if I really respected what he was doing when he was doing it, like the 20 years, like between about 1985 and 2005 before he just retired, like you know, but now I kind of think, wow, man, you know, he worked really hard and, and did it for his family and stuff. And it's pretty amazing, right? Mm-hmm. It, did having James really change your own personal work ethic and what kind of comics you wanted to tell? Jeez. Uh, I guess so, because, uh, no, you know what, because... All the work I'd done before, like I did the story about my grandfather and everything, and I know that uh, he'll be able to read all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, no, I don't think it changes you too much. But then again, I think I've heard too many of your interviews, and I heard one where you asked somebody else, did it change you having issues? <laughs> That's a yeah. problem. People shouldn't listen to the show before I interview them. Well, you know, <laughs> your show is quite a very... Uh, very interesting record of our times and uh, one of the few books I, I left the city a couple of weeks ago and like one of the few books that brought up was like this pen and ink book written in the 1920s and and the author states that yeah, all the people who do this uh, drawing they're very thoughtful heavy thinkers you know because you really got to think about what you're doing like you know and uh, yeah it's true but all these comic artists you're talking about you're talking to they're very heavy thinkers and it's quite a little, uh, not a little, it's quite a, uh, an archive of work that you've created. And I think it's also one of the few good uses of the Internet, you know, because it's these, uh, what is it called, podcasts? Mm-hmm. You, can, you can listen to them out in the sun. You know, this is one thing about computers, like, 
the internet, like you can't really, it's not something you can take outside with it's you. It's not portable. Podcasts, you can. Um, speaking of you know archiving, I was just wondering if you could talk about the importance of Canadian history to you, because a lot of your work revolves around things that happened in Saskatoon. Well, and Canada. you know, yeah, because when I was in Saskatoon, I was covering all these amazing stories, right? And it's just like, whoa, you know, nobody's done this, and nobody's, you know, it's not like the movie of the week. It's like you know, here's an American story. It'd be amazing. Like sat, would be saturated with it, but yeah. Uh, and also, I also had these connections with these stories too. You know, like the Alpha Cathwood story. You know, I started not. My first wife was wondering, "Why the hell are you doing that? Nobody's going to be interested." In that, right? Maybe that's why we're not married anymore. But you know, like I, I started doing the Alpha Cathwood story, and I'd been a high jumper, like in grade school, and. Uh, I'd always win the high jump event. I don't want to brag, but like in grade <laughs> five, I'd go to like the city finals for this. Like the only year, this other boy, Andy McVeigh, would beat me in every other sport, like the running sports and the jump, the long jump and stuff. Andy McVeigh would win. Later, like I heard, Andy McVeigh was playing for the Calgary Stampeders as a running back. But I'd always win the high jump, right? And I'd be reading about Ethel Catherwood and. Uh, when I moved to Saskatoon, I started researching. And I, did, I drew a couple of pages of the story, and then I came across something in the library newspaper archives that she learned how to jump at 405 25th Street West. And I lived at 406 20th. I just lived like one block. I, lived, I shared the same backyard as where she learned how to high jump, and I thought that was kind of weird, right? <laughs> I knew about Ethel Cathwood when I was a kid high jumper, right? So... Yeah, it's like, it's there in the land, right, all these stories, and uh, it's there, you know, that, that really is interesting. I did notice that. There's a lot of, it seems, a lot of the stories you take on, there's this weird personal connection you have to it. Like, I yeah. think the surviving Saskatoon one about David uh, Milgard, yeah. there was some personal oddities that were relevant for you as well, wasn't there? Mm-hmm. Can't remember what they are right now. But. <laughs> I think it was uh, cl- like close proximity of somewhere you were staying or someone like you knew close. Oh, well, yeah, living in Saskatoon, I'd see like all these little stickers like "Free David Milgard Now," right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I found interesting, I was just I'm just was doing some canoeing today, right? And I was reading a book called uh, like Canadian Canoe Routes and Trails, like all these. Voyager canoe routes and stuff. Uh, they're, they're like the same now as they ever were, right? And I'm like looking at the Madawaska River as I'm talking to you, and it's like exactly the same now as it was like 10,000 years ago, and like like the same currents, you know, the same scenery, and the same wind, you know, it's all the same, right? It's, a lot of this country's just, you know, the same as it ever was, right? Oh, the, the rivers don't change much. No. We've still got a good supply of water going, at least for the next 20 years. Cold yeah, water. That's cold that's cold water. Like a, in a lot of literature, in Canadian literature, but Canada is like the most maritime country. There's, at the Marine Discovery Center in Hamilton, it's like Canada has like 200 million kilometers of coastline, and like the next closest country I think is Russia with 14 million kilometers of coastline. It's just crazy like how much water there is. Yeah. 
Have you ever considered doing a Canadian historical story that goes further back into Canada's history? Like most of the ones you've yeah, told are more to. recent. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I had this friend in Saskatoon, and he's a writer. You see him in Canadian Geographic a lot. His name's Alan Casey. He always wanted to retrace like David Thompson's canoe routes, like out there, going out to. Uh, the West, and I didn't pay enough attention to what he was up to. Like, he was even talking about me and him, like, going on a trip, and now I'd really love to do that. Like, I've been reading a book called From New York to Nome about these two guys in 1937. He set out from New York City, just not even having any canoe experience at all. And they said, oh, hey, we can go all the way from New York to, New York to Nome. And, and, like, by the time they were, like, Two miles up the Hudson River, they were all sunburned and their blistered. <laughs> and these guys, they made it all the way to Nome, Alaska, over two two years just canoeing, and it's just like a that's a lot really of portaging. Cool eh? That's a lot of portaging. Yeah, like there's, just, I've really been reading a lot about like uh, all those voyageurs and courier de bois. You know, it's like we used to like learn in school that oh, the Canadian Shield is this big barrier from the east to the west. But actually, Canada had this thing going way before the Americans with their railroads and stuff. Like we had all these canoe routes and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's just like the power of these guys in the late 1600s, 1700s. You know, like they leave Lachine uh, Mon- outside of Montreal and and they just go to. Uh, Thunder Bay is right now. It's called Fort William, and then that's where they'd meet like the the guys from the west, from Fort Chippewan and stuff. And mm-hmm. yeah, they were very two, interesting for me. Yeah. I think there were fur, two fur companies. One that would work out of Montreal and send people back and forth across, and the uh, Hudson's Bay, the Northwesterners, and the, the Hudson's Bay. The North- this yeah, is like the Canadian historian yeah, show. Yeah, like, just like, <laughs> you know, oh, the winters and. Everything had to be so fast. You know, these guys would be getting up, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning and start paddling. You'd have breakfast at 8 o'clock and then paddle all day, all day until, like, 10 o'clock at night. And it's just like the summer season. You just got to get it done before, like, the freeze-up happens, right? It's amazing. Have you ever been to Fort Vancouver? No. Oh, it's uh, Hudson's Bay Trading Fort. It's now in uh, at the bottom of Washington State across from Portland, Oregon. And... It was a Hudson's Bay trading fort on the Columbia River that was actually settled by French-Canadian voyageurs and Hawaiians who worked for the Hudson's Bay Company. It was wow. the largest town north of San Francisco on wow, the West Coast. Like Ast- where Astor was? Uh, no, it's, Astor's further south in okay. uh, Oregon. Yeah. It's, it's just across the river from Portland wow. in, Was- in Vancouver, Washington. Have you ever been to, like, where that rock is, where Alexander Mackenzie wrote, uh, Mackenzie by land, uh... Where is 17 that? ...whatever, 17, way back in history, the first guy to cross the continent. Where, where is that rock? I don't think That's I have. That's, like, Bella Coola, Vancouver. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, so that would it's be like, just north of here. Oh. Yeah. That's just amazing, too, and it's amazing how that was found, like, in the, I don't know, what was it, the 1920s or even 18... 18- late 1800s it was found again he had written it in like in Greece fat like in 1794 whenever he did that trip it was still there? yeah wow yeah that's an amazing piece of graffiti eh? <laughs> yeah, that people? I'd love to go there I never went there I've been to like the Terry Fox place and on the Trans Canada I've been to the last spike and stuff but 
Yeah. Me and my dad did a trip in a camper from Calgary out to Vancouver once when I was about 14 or something. This has got to be the most Canadian show we've had, and I love it. Yeah. I think I'm going to go for some maple syrup and oh, bacon yeah. after this. Oh, no, I just get the power from the country, you know. Just like, you know, you and I'm paddling my boat, just, you know, the the power of the the wind or the cold, you know, you just get, it makes you strong, you know. Like the, the natives on the prairie say, you know, like, I don't know, the south wind brings the rain, the east wind brings this and that, and the north wind... The north wind brings strength and endurance. So, so you're never tempted to go down to the states to live to pursue your comics and illustration career? Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, I have a friend. He's dying of Lou Gehrig's. He's just going down to uh, Las Vegas at the end of the end of the month, end of July, and uh, you know it's too bad, you know. But living in Canada. Was yeah, it's something he can't do anymore, you know. Mm-hmm. And his his wife's down there, Las Vegas. He's he's a guy I wrote about in Geist magazine about playing hockey together. We used to play hockey uh, at this rink around Young and St. Clair. I had this little one room apartment when I was a messenger for the artist out there. And he was from the Prairies, John Morton. He, he's from some place outside of Brandon, Manitoba, and we were friends grade seven I met him he was this really shy guy from the prairies and uh, and uh, we'd play hockey when I was in my early 20s with like Michael Budman he had he's the founder of Roots and he was really into really competitive hockey players <laughs> so like around six o'clock every night Budman would show up with his the latest Roots gear right and me and John Morton the assorted kids would be playing and Budman was so competitive and organized would be like like little nine year olds and stuff playing too and be like, All right you guys come on, let's make two teams, come on and they really into getting a competitive game of hockey and those are great great times, you know. And cold nights and good hockey and uh, yeah, it's kind of a real sad thing my friends moving down to the States now. Didn't you live in Seattle for a while? Oh. Who? You or I spent a summer in Seattle, yeah. I showed up there with like 35 cents in my pocket and caught in a ride with Robin's mother, Robin uh, Bouget's mother. Oh, okay. Mm. And uh, I showed up with absolutely no money. Mark Zingarelli put me up one night <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I made the ferry from Victoria down to that place in Washington State. And then, yeah, I think it was near Stanwood where Mark Zingarelli was living. And he drove me down to Seattle and then Groff gave me a job in the warehouse at Fanographics and also said that there'd be some art jobs coming up like I, I touched up a little Orphan Annie book from 1935 and stuff like that How but yeah I was really lucky that it was it was this point where I had to uh, I had to do that and uh, work things out with the publisher and with my wife and uh, yeah so that was a really important year though that was Really good, you know, meeting all the guys from the greenhouse and hanging out with Pat Moriarty, driving down to San Diego with him, you know, in the Fanographics van. You know, so yeah, there really is, uh, you know, we're dwarfed by the States and, and there's so much talent there and uh, and uh, all the comics thing and uh, everything. Yeah, I can't say, well, 
I hate the States because there's so many talented and good people there, right? Pat tells me you visited uh, George Harriman's house. Yeah, you know, we were living like on no sleep. It was crazy. I had this idea, because I was working in the warehouse. I packed up the van in such a way that we had like a car, like in between the, the two driver's seats. So like uh, Tim Thompson's like, oh, we have got to put more stuff in this van, actually, because we've packed it in such a way, right? But... Yeah, we had this thing where we'd just, like, drive all the time, and, like, one guy would be sleeping and the other guy would be driving, and so this is so we could do some drawing and stuff during the day, right? And we'd, like, drive all night. And this is something I also did when I was doing those global mail drawings, like I'd drive all night and then draw in the day, you know, and just sleep by the side of the road and a little hoochie and made off the side of my car. So we were doing a lot of driving and we were really sleep deprived and we made it down to Los Angeles and I'd done a little bit of research when I was in Seattle like okay exactly where was Harriman's house right? so that was a good trip but man that guy has yeah as Jeet said in one of your shows he was really pissed off you know, the owner of the house and we were there because we just kind of like walked in when these cleaners were walking and it was okay if you come in here <laughs> Down there, it's like the outside is part of your house more than in Canada. Like, you're, you get these little patios or whatever, and that's really part of your living space, and I don't think I knew that. Now, the outside of the house was painted, like Harriman had painted some weird stuff on the outside, too, from what I understand. Oh, yeah. I, it was all just surrounded by this huge hedge, right? And I couldn't, you couldn't really see the house. Like, I wanted to draw, do some drawing there, right? But... That's why I had to get into the into the patio area because I wanted something to draw, right? And the guy came down. He just like had a towel wrapped around his waist, shaving cream on his face. Like, what are you doing here? I don't know. You get out of here! Christ, he was so mad. And then like Pat, he's more like a calm kind of Iowa kind of guy. And, and as we as we left, he's like, "Well, gosh, you know, I guess we offend, scare them and stuff. We should leave some of our comics." So Pat left like a big mouth, and I left an issue of Collier's in his mailbox with a note, you know, that Pat wrote, you know, like, "Sorry if we frightened you." So I was lucky because the next time we went through Los Angeles, we I don't know, we called the guy. Yeah, because we did get his number just before we left, you know, and. We called him, and he was really nice, and he let us come in and hang out. And even though he was going out to work, he let us hang out in the patio there for a while. Oh, I hadn't heard that part of the story. Yeah, so, yeah, it turned out all right. Yeah. A happy ending. Yeah. Did you get some good sketches? Yeah, and I did some sketches there, Pat there, um, firing up something to smoke, right where Harriman might have done the same thing. Something? Yeah. Uh. Um... Now, what is it about the sketchbook, too, that is so powerful? Because I'm reading all these things, and you you tr- try to capture moments, I guess, with the sketchbook instead of photography. You want to just go and draw it. Yeah. Well, uh, you know what? When you're sketching, when you're there, and, like, people looking over your shoulder, you know, like, I remember once in Seattle, I was drawing on the street, and this guy came up to me and like, you 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 doing that, man? And like, oh. then he's like, take a step back, and like, come back. Well, I don't believe you doing that, man. Holy, <laughs> you know, just like just people's reactions and like, you know, can you make money drawing? And people ask, talking to you. 
it just takes so long to draw. You just can't help but be part of the scene. And the funny thing for me is, like, I'm normally kind of a shy guy and stuff, but when I'm drawing, it's like I own that little spot. I can't become immersed in it, and I just feel like I'm part of the landscape. And it, it's like, you know, like, people on city streets can just get intimidated so much of the traffic and stuff, and you just don't... It's not like we have a friendly world that people feel like they belong, like they do in Europe, maybe in Italy or something, where the pace is slower here. You know, there's cars going by, and you just don't feel like being out on the street. But when you're drawing, it's it's like, yeah, it's all right. It's, you feel calm. What do you sketch with? Uh, you know, I just uh, like those Hunt 102 nibs. Oh, my like God. So. A, a dip pen. Huh? A dip pen. Yeah, I find it's like, I think uh, back in the day, like when there's a whole cartoonist culture in San Francisco, people used to have big debates, like, is it better to be a repeatograph guy or a dip pen guy? Because you, know, you get this different tension when you when you draw for a repeatograph, you kind of tense up. You know, Chris Ware's kind of sworn off them, but I still like them. But yeah, the dip pen, I like to go back and forth between dip pen and repeatograph pen. Does it depend on the feeling of the story you're doing? Oh, no. From a comic, so I always draw in uh, the dip pen. But, yeah, I thought Colin was talking about, like, sketching out in the <laughs> oh, field, right? And that's when you, it's like you can't always get the dip pen out. And, yeah, sometimes, yeah. Because when, when I sketch out on the road, I just use a ballpoint or a gel pen. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever works, man. Mm-hmm. Now tell me about um, about Humphrey Osmond, the psychedelic pioneer. Yeah, that's a that's something that's got a West Coast connection too, eh? because mm-hmm. his partner Abram Hoffer, he still has a practice in Victoria. He's doing a lot of vitamin therapy and stuff. And when I was on the island there, I, I dropped off a copy of that comic, and I heard back from Hoffer too. Kind of liked it. Wow! But uh, Humphrey Osmond was from. Uh, England, right? And he uh, served in the Navy in the Second World War. He was a doctor. And he got a job in Saskatchewan. And around the same time, he started experimenting with uh, mushrooms and LSD on, on the patients as a way to try to wean them from their alcoholism and stuff like that. And I didn't know about this until Timothy Leary came to Saskatchewan and do you people here in Saskatchewan know that the term psychedelic was coined? And around that time, I was working for the Star Phoenix. The newspaper in Saskatoon, I was drawing a comic every day on the third page. And I said to the editors, wow, this would be great to cover in the paper, right? And you're, you're, you're running uh, the 90th birthday of Saskatchewan special edition. You should get this in your paper, but they didn't really take me up on it. So... I did my own comic about it, and uh, yeah, another one of those things where you just get immersed in the subject, you know, and I went to the archives at the University of Saskatchewan, found all this interesting stuff out, and went down to Weyburn, where the big mental hospital was, and oh yeah, a real creepy place. I, I was just reading somewhere that they were reviving the idea of using LSD therapy yeah, on alcoholics. Yeah, I too, about using mushrooms, right? Oh. Yeah, there are some benefits to that, right? Mm-hmm. So, 
It's just too bad. And uh, when uh, Osmond passed away a few years ago, I actually got a, an email from Alabama where he ended up. And I guess that he had he had gotten that comic. Okay? So that's something that these comics are good for is to like kind of tie up loose ends and 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 reach out to people who've touched you, right? And they almost always respond, right? And and your show is interesting because you're you're like talking to people, and it's like you get these amazing people on your show, right? And it's like you just call them up and you talk to them, right? And and this is something that my wife was talking to me about, like when I was doing this thing about Paul Arthur, you know, like I was able to just call this guy up and talk to him, and then also hang out with him. And, and in the last year of his life, I hung out with him, and he took me to the provincial archives where his papers were. And my wife is saying, you know. It's a weird world where you can just, like, call up Paul Arthur and talk to him, who's got so much to say, but, you know, everybody else, they want to just, you know, talk to Sylvester Stallone or somebody who has nothing <laughs> to say, right? Our whole culture is, is it, people are just interested, and these people have nothing to say, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so... Well, that's I, that's I, why I love doing it. It's a chance to talk to all sorts of people that I love, like being yeah, able to... it's a great project you're doing here, and uh, have, I hope... Uh, your phone bills don't get too high. Uh, luckily, it's not too bad. Uh, yeah. Wow. But it is a labor of love. Donations are kindly accepted, listeners. What? <laughs> you can't do that? <laughs> it's a joke. Oh. Um, now, do you have any comics coming out in the future that you've been working on? Yeah. Yeah. But as Jen's grandfather, who's a real writer, he's a Vancouver guy named Ronald Hamilton, says, I don't talk about work I'm working on. <laughs> you would not. It's like, why well, do it, right? You would not be the first, and you'll definitely not be the last. And I, uh, yeah. I, I admire that because it's. Uh, yeah, see, it was better when I lived in Saskatoon, and I was like in obscurity. I had nobody to talk to until Robin and Becky came along. You know, because there you just like work on the stuff, and there's nobody to like ask you about anything, right? Hamilton's a little bit different. I live there now, and like. I'm starting to get a little bit of notoriety. You know, I have other friends who are artists and stuff, like Simon O'Fanna and Gord Puller. And, uh, yeah. How far is Hamilton from Toronto? It's about an hour down the road, but it's, like, it's a lot different than in, out in the West, right? Because you've got this barrier of traffic to mm-hmm. get through, so it's, like, you might as well be living, like, I don't know, in Swift Current or something. Cause like, people in the prairies, they might live in Swift Current, and they'll drive to Moose Jaw for a cup of coffee or something. It's just, like, no big deal, right? But getting around in Ontario is just such a hassle. Yeah. Don't they have a commuter train system? Yeah, and actually that's getting to be good because you can take your bikes on it now, right? So you can actually... I find it a lot of fun to to uh, bike to the train station and take my bicycle on the train and actually I got a little bit famous in Toronto for like canoeing like across Hamilton Harbor to Burlington and then I had to like stash my canoe and take my paddles to Toronto with my bicycle so I had to go to all these places like McLean's and Ontario Arts Council and I had all these calls to make Coral Magazine and I had my paddles with me the whole time and they're like oh yeah here's a guy who canoe to Toronto from Hamilton but it's not true I only canoe to Burlington but people still think I canoe to Toronto (laughs) 
The uh, the outback cartoonist is your will be your reputation. That was a hard day too. I almost swamped my canoe. It's east wind, right? Normally Hamilton has the best harbor for like paddling around, and I I don't know why I'm the only guy doing it, but it's like you get this prevailing west wind, right? And so like there's this big thing called the Iroquois Bar that stops like the wind, and and the waves don't build up that much, so it's just great for. There's a lot of rowers out there. Leander and I'm pretty sure I saw Adam Vancouverton out there once too eh? he's this kayaker who's probably going to win everything at Beijing coming up like he won at Athens the uh, I think the 100 meter kayak gold right and he's this guy a McMaster University student who's uh, he kayaks out of like Burlington and kayaks it's, around there and it's, it's he's the, done a lot for the sport too is the harbor at all? Young guys, like now I'm seeing like young guys, kind of like just like I don't know, the kind of guys who wear baseball caps backwards, and they're kind of like goofy guys, but they've got these homemade kayaks, and they're starting to go out in the bay and stuff, which is really good. Because like this whole thing, like I thought, oh my god, after living in Saskatoon and living up here near Algonquin, I could never live in like Hamilton or Toronto or a place like that, but. The water, right? It's like, same with L.A., like, it's like a national park, you know, like, right next to a big city. It's like, and people are scared of it or something, you know, it's just, like, empty and unchanging. Like, man can't screw it up, you know, you can't build it on it. You can't alter it. Well, it's is, always there. is the harbor at all polluted? Wasn't Hamilton a big industrial? Like, Sheila Copps did the famous swim around 1995 in it, and in a wetsuit, <gasps> point out how... How, how it's been cleaned up. And I actually did this thing for the Hamilton Spectator, like a project where I'd swim every day in the bay for a month. <laughs> and that actually just went up on the Lake Ontario Waterkeeper's website, Swimming the Bay. You Google David Collier Swimming the Bay. So I thought, okay, I'm going to swim the bay every day and see what happens. <laughs> and I went to a doctor before I started this project, and I said, okay, I'm healthy now, right? And yeah, yeah. So let's check out how I do a month from now. And... Uh, and I lived, you know. I really had to shower after I did it because I had this really awful, itchy feeling. But no, I swam across Hamilton Harbor it's like, every day, like, and it's like and, super uh, size I me. I did seal up my whole body. I had like earplugs in and goggles. Right? <laughs> no, it was very enjoyable, and I, I'd probably be doing that still. But once I started getting into my boat and paddling around, I just see like all these thesises and tampon applicators floating around. And I just thought, no, I don't want to swim in it anymore. On that note, I must uh, thank you for your uh, your uh, joining yeah, well, us for an come hour, out David. Visit me someday, man, if you're ever in town. One day I may be traveling across the country. Ne- next yeah, time I'm in Hamilton, like you got your own uh, journey to do. So, like, uh, good luck with that. All right. Are you ever gonna come out to the West Coast for a visit? Oh yeah, for sure. You know, I will probably next summer. I want to take James back to Saskatoon too. Well, thank you very much, okay. David. Good and to talk uh, to you, okay? Yeah, thanks. And have a swell time back in the river. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, that was a wonderful David Collier. Um, we barely even mentioned what his books are, but I really <laughs> want to suggest that you check out what his books uh, I think the most recent is the Hamilton Sketchbook from Drawn and Quarterly. He has Portraits of Life um, from Drawn and Quarterly, Just the Facts from Drawn and Quarterly, and also the Frank Ritza Papers from Drawn and Quarterly. And he's got a couple issues with his series, Collier from John Corley, and 
breathe. Uh, American <laughs> Splendor, he did a wonderful three-issue miniseries about um, a biography of, what was his name? Where is it here? Robert McNeil, I think it was. Uh, yep, Lance Corporal Robert McNeil. Uh, done with Harvey Picar for American Splendor. Um, it's a wonderful little miniseries. Check it out. David's really is one of our more important Canadian cartoonists, and uh, he really is goes with the identity of of being Canadian in his cartooning. So check out his work. Um, this weekend, if you're in Vancouver, go down to the art gallery and say hi to uh, some folks like Robin Bougie, Don King, I think will be at the gallery on Saturday um, in the Squidhead Sculpture Selling Comics. And Sunday, I forget who's going to be there, but there will be some folks there. From and noon till four, I think Noon to four at the Art Gallery. And, uh, yeah, next week our guest will be uh, Camila DeRico, where we will be talking about comic with her, of course, and more. I'm going to end the show off with uh, some more Canadiana. Here's uh, Neil Young with Helpless. Change. 